We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Today, I talked to veteran and entrepreneur Tom Schwab, founder and CEO of Interview Valet. In this noisy digital world, if you can't break through the noise, you just add to it. Instead, you need to get in on the conversation where your ideal customers are already listening. As a Navy veteran who ran nuclear power plants and an inbound marketing engineer, Tom Schwab has a refreshing, unique approach to getting noticed. He focuses on time-proven strategies, then supercharges them with today's technology and podcast interview marketing. As an author, speaker, and teacher, Tom helps you get more traffic, leads, and raving customer fans by being interviewed on targeted podcasts. Tom founded Interview Valet after seeing a need for a workable system for entrepreneurs, authors, and thought leaders to market themselves through podcast interviews. Tom references his time in the Navy as good training for the pandemic, as well as building a business, instilling in him a mindset that looks at the journey instead of the end. Instead of approaching every day as the same as the last, he chooses to embrace each day's challenge and to learn something new one of the hallmarks of being an entrepreneur. Another lesson Tom has applied from his military career is the value of having an efficient process and always be assessing it. He believes in hiring good people, building a good system, and then trusting in his team to make good decisions. This is why he calls himself a chief evangelist officer. He's an evangelist for his company, his clients, and his employees who all work remotely. Remote teams are one of the only ways to respond to clients that are all over the world. As an entrepreneur, Tom strives for work-life integration rather than work-life balance. This enables him to schedule his time to focus on his business when he needs to and then to schedule time for his family or other pursuits. While he feels like he only works 10 hours a week, well, that's really because the rest of the time that he's quote-unquote working, he's actually having a ton of fun. And that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. Now, let's get better together. Tom Schwab, welcome to the podcast. Jari, I am thrilled to be here. Yeah, I really uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, what was great about uh, getting to uh, get you on the podcast is that you are a veteran. And I have a lot of buddies that are active duty now and also that are veterans. Um, and it's just such a great feeling to see, you know, veteran owned businesses. And I love to support those 
Uh, and we'll talk about your veteran-owned business in a second. But before we do that, let's hear about your time in the Navy. Well, uh, I thank you for paying for my education <laughs> because I was a Midwest kid, never been more than 100 miles from my home, and I got appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy. Oh, great. Got to go to Annapolis, expanded my world. I loved it um, and actually got in there on a technical error. They didn't figure it out till my senior year. Uh, I have no depth perception. Oh. So I see the world flat, um, can't use binoculars, all the rest of that. And I <laughs> thought, oh my gosh, they're going to kick me out. And they're like, no, nah, taxpayers have invested enough money. Well, this was in the late or, uh, late 80s. They needed nukes, right? They mm -hmm. had uh, nuclear-powered ships. They had nuclear-powered submarines. I was a mechanical engineer. Uh, so they gave me a waiver. And uh, my first job out of the academy was running nuclear power plants uh, in the Navy. I was aboard uh, USS Abraham Lincoln. At the time, she was the newest and finest. Now she's just the finest on her second tank of fuel. But it was a great experience for a young engineer, a young person to see the world, to experience things. Um, you know, uh, you're there in San Francisco, and my last duty station was in Alameda, California. You know, I had a great view. Um, uh, when I was in port, but uh, I cherish, I cherish that, and also what it taught me. Right? Uh, people say, "Wow, that was amazing! You ran nuclear power plants," and I'm like, "No. What's amazing is that smart people could come up with systems so that twenty somethings uh, could do it reliably, safely, and have the culture there." So I've tried to take that same things that I learned there and applied it to all of my businesses. Yeah, I mean, I'm always impressed when you look at some of those military manuals. And it's like Abrams tank, F-18, whatever it is. And they literally like make it Sesame Street simple so that it's like X, Y, you know, and it's shocking that they could take anyone, which, which I think is to their credit. They could take anyone with a reasonable amount of intelligence and you can train them to pretty much do anything. And that I think is just such a great like model to have. And I don't think a lot of companies sort of have that mentality uh, I wish they did more because I think a lot of young people kind of need that. And, and, you know, your, your opportunity to go on a, you know, it's an aircraft carrier, right? It was, yeah, oh, or it is. Yeah. It is. Okay. Um, just so, so like such a good opportunity to kind of like live the world and be in the world. So like, so you're on a ship, which is a big ship. It's like what, 3000 people or some massive. It's, it, it's like 5,000. Oh, 5,000. Yeah. Right. Um, how, how is it to, not be bored <laughs> or like it's, you must get cabin fever, don't you? Or how, how was that? You know, I spent a couple of weeks on a submarine when <laughs> I was in, um, in at the Naval Academy and it drove me crazy. So to me, being on an aircraft carrier, I I'm a runner, mm. um, you know, I, not competitively anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, on an aircraft carrier, you can still go out for a run on the flight deck. Um, and so to me, that was much easier and yeah, there's 5,000 people on there, but I can think of like, there was a, a gentleman that I boxed with uh, at the Naval Academy and he was a pilot. I was a nuke down, you know, in the bowels of the ship. We were like underway for about three months before we ran into each other and both said the same thing. When did you get, when did you get on board? And it was like, uh, when we pushed off, you know, and <laughs> just never ran into each other. So I, I don't know. It's, um, it's different. I mean, it's a, it's a different life and everything like that, but I guess it's like a lot of things, you know, um, I, I felt like I was much better than the Submariners. Uh, but then there was a lot of people that would probably look and say they were still claustrophobic. Yeah. I mean, cause what, one of the things I read, um, cause we're talking right now during the, obviously the COVID-19 stuff. And what I read was there was this three quarter rule. And the three-quarter rule was that things got a little weird, like three-quarters of the way through a deployment or through like a cruise or something where you could anticipate like we're at the end, but we're not quite at the end. Did, did you feel that? Is that, is that real? Yes. And the other thing that's that there's – I've heard somebody say this is like the world is on deployment, right? Right. Yeah, right now. that's exactly, exactly. Because on deployments, they could say we've got a six-month deployment. That doesn't mean you're going to be back in six months. Mm. That's the plan, right? Okay. So you'd start to go crazy if all of a sudden you would say, we've only got so many days left because when it got extended, it could 
devastate you or that, um, you know, we're going to have this port call now. Um, maybe, maybe not, you know, nothing is guaranteed on there. So taking it as you go there. Um, and I see a lot of parallels of what I was doing in the Navy. And now, you know, that, that whole idea of every day is the same. Well, yeah, yeah, if you do it that way, it can be, um, you know, the view never changes, uh, but you got to find something every day still to celebrate, uh, and have fun with it. That's actually a really good bit of advice because I know a lot of people that are struggling with the whole shelter in place and again the whole world's on deployment we don't know when it's going to end and that can be very frustrating so so I like the finding every day some joy or something new I mean I can imagine you sit on an aircraft carrier and you're like it's ocean today's ocean tomorrow's ocean you know <laughs> and you know you can even go back further than that you look at a book like victor frankl mm, uh, yes. man's search for meaning and he would always say that uh, you know there's people that said oh we're going to be out of this by hanukkah or you know the new year when it came and went it would destroy him um admiral stockdale mm. who was the senior uh, pow uh, stockdale paradigm is always never giving up hope but then always also being real realistic with the, you know, the situation that we're in right now. Uh, so it, it's a tough thing at times, but uh, you know, if you don't laugh, you got to cry. Yeah, no, I agree. Agree. And, and those situations were not as, not as bad, I think as we are, you know, I mean, sorry, our situation now is not as bad as some of those where clearly sort of the whole world's in it. And, and I think that's a good, one, it's a good thing. And then also it's sort of like, wow, there's going to be a, a lot of weird things are going to happen. Like who knows if we're three quarters of the way through the cruise, right? We're, we're like anticipating right. that. Um, but I do think that uh, being able to have that daily kind of, okay, today's a new day. How are we going to move forward? You know, we don't know the end, but don't like folk fixate on when things are going to you know, be normal, quote unquote, but just sort of live the day. Uh, and I've found that entrepreneurs that are that way tend to be a lot more successful. And I think the reason is, is as an entrepreneur, we're sort of used to this. We're actually used to when we don't know when our product's going to hit. We don't know if we're going to get another thing of fundraising. We don't know how all of this stuff's going to work. And so we have to have this attitude that every day is a new day, find the joy in the, in the little things, but also it's the journey, the, the end states, it may never end. It may never end. And um, the, the thing that I find really fascinating about sort of what, what you're doing uh, with interview valet um, is that, you know, that journey will never end because you can always be doing something every day to kind of promote your business and be that person that people look to for advice. So could you tell us a little bit about Interview Valet and kind of how you formed it? Yeah. And it's, everything in this world I see is it's evolutionary, not revolutionary, mm. right? Um, everything builds on on something else. And, you know, our mission is to personally introduce inspiring thought leaders to millions of ideal people they could serve for the betterment of all. Nowhere in there does it say we get people on podcast interviews, but that's what we do, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's really that idea of, I believe today, everybody's biggest problem is obscurity or, mm -hmm. you know, especially for businesses, totally. right? There's a, with your current product or service, there's thousands, millions of people that would be thrilled right now to give you money for it. The only problem is they don't know you exist. <laughs> and I think honestly, these people that keep telling us break through the noise, they're the ones selling us the megaphones, right? Totally. Um, totally. You know, we're not, we're not breaking through the noise. We're yelling, we're getting hoarse to me. It's easier just to get in on the conversation. So really that's where it came from. Um, 15 years ago, um, I was one of HubSpot's early customers in e-commerce. Hmm. One of the hacks that we used to use for inbound marketing was guest blogging, right? Yep. So instead of that. me putting a, a blog up myself and having three people read it, you know, one of them being my mom, well, I'd put the blog up there on a guest site, right? Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, wherever the audience was, get that no like and trust and tap into that audience. And, you know, in 2000, 
14, I hypothesized, huh, I wonder if you could do that same thing on podcast interviews. Um, and so we tested it. It worked well. In fact, it worked so well that I was like, you know, this has got to be a niche. It's got to be a personality. Um, we were seeing conversion rates 25 times better than blogs. Wow. But as we tested it, it was like, no, that's, that's true, right? If somebody listens to you for 30 or 45 minutes, they've already self-selected. Yeah, that's right? true. They either think um, that, uh, you know, no, this isn't for me or I want to work with Jari. So with that, um, you know, we uh, we started to to test it, refine it. I wrote this cheesy PDF book and was just giving it away because I was tired of telling people how to do it. And then somebody said, oh, you should do a course. I did the course. I never took it out of beta because it sold well. But the people that were honest with me are like, listen, um, you know, you gave me the cookbook. You gave me the videos. I don't want to learn how to be the chef. You know, you, you do it. Let me, you know, let me be the guest. And so in the end of 2015, we started to beta test that worked so well. We took it out of beta in 2016. And now, uh, here we are, you know, we serve about a hundred clients at a time. We've got a team of 18, um, all remote. Not everybody wants to live in Kalamazoo, Michigan with me. Really? Shocking. Yeah. Imagine that. (laughs) Um, but you know, there's two in Canada, two in um, uh, Europe, and the rest are are in the states. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, so you in 2016 were already remote, so the whole business. I yeah, I live on six acres in a suburb of Kalamazoo, and uh, <laughs> I have a remote team, so I feel like I was doing you know social distancing before it was popular. <laughs> true, true. Because I know that uh, a lot of times when so the, the the same premise you have for entrepreneurs and businesses holds true for authors. Authors half the battle is getting the book done; the other half the battle is getting it people to read it. Because again, it's not that it's not a good book. It's, again, not that it's not a good book or a product or whatever. People just don't know about you. And if you're a creative artist, the hard well one of the hardest things to do is promote yourself. And tell people how great you are and all these sort of crazy things that, again, it's like, I think it's viscerally in someone that's creative to be like, well, you know, they should just read my book because it's great, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, whole reason why I started the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast is because my book is called Entrepreneur Ethos. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I wanted to have the conversations I had with the people that I interviewed for the book because, I mean, just had some great conversations with folks. And the nice thing about that is that a conversation, and I think you're totally right when it comes to, if you're committed to hearing two people talk or the person that you like talk, like you're in, like it's a huge barrier, but once you're over that barrier, that's just so powerful. Um, and, and I think that to me is why I think the medium of podcasting is going to continue to grow. And what you guys are doing at interview valet just makes a ton of sense. I mean, why do is it, is it, do you think the reason why it converts 25 times better is because people get to know you? Is it like the, the personal touch? Well, what, what do you think it is that really makes I, it? I, I think so. It's really, you know, um, Rand Fishkin from, uh, ran a company called Moz. He wrote a book called, uh, lost and founder. Um, I love one of the tweets he put out there. He said today, the best way to sell something is not to sell anything but to earn the respect, awareness, and trust of those who might buy. So I think that's really what podcasts and podcast interviews are. It gives a chance for people to get to know you. And it's really, are you trying to do a transaction? You know, you're trying to sell a widget, um, you know, and if that's the case, be a penny cheaper than the next person. But if you're trying to build a business and build long-term relationships, people have to know your heart, right? And even today, you know, you think of, uh, I couldn't tell you who the who the owner of Procter and Gamble is, or who the the leader of it is, or you know um, even like uh, Chrysler now. Uh, but if you look at Facebook, HubSpot, um, you know Google, all of those companies, there's sort of a face, a a heart, a spirit that goes along with that, and I think that's what people want right now. Um, so especially if they're going to do a relationship with them, right? Uh, I have to know, like, and trust my accountant or my lawyer. Now, are they the best in the world? I don't know, but they're the best for me because they understand me. They get along. And I think that's really 
where podcasting comes into. You get to know somebody, you get to hear their story. The other thing that's interesting, and this actually came from a futurist down there at Stanford, just south of you, um, he made the comment that he saw podcasting as non-judgmental from the standpoint, if I'm just listening to your voice, I'm not saying, oh, you're too old, you're too young, Ah, you don't look like me, Um, that you really listen to the content, not making judgments on there. And, you know, I I have to laugh because my niece was studying for her um, real estate exam uh, Mm -hmm. last year. And she was telling me, Uncle Tom, you know, there's this guy named Zig Ziglar. He's funny. You would (laughs) love him. And so she's telling me all about this. And I didn't have the, the heart to tell her, honey, that, you know, those things that you're listening to, were probably recorded before you were born and that Zig has been dead for years, right? Yeah. But to her, true. that voice was was timeless. Whereas I I think of uh, you know, I watch Star Wars or something with my kids and they laugh. They're like, these are special effects. <laughs> you know, we watch Wall Street and you see the uh, you know, Michael Douglas out there with his cell phone that looks like it was from World War II, yeah, yeah, a walkie-talkie. Yeah. And that the video gets so dated. But the audio um, is just, you know, uh, vivid audio. There's just something to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely priceless, I think. And, and what's interesting is that I, I was on a podcast called the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. Uh, did five seasons with them. And uh, it was part of the Story Grid Editor certification that I have since I'm a story nerd. It's a long, drawn out discussion, right? Uh, but one of the things that, you know, the, 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 there was five of us on that podcast. And what we did was we would go through a movie and we'd analyze it through the story grid method and then talk about it to see how to build better stories. Like stories are, you know, for me, you know, the, the brand that tells the best story just, it wins just, just hands down. Right. Um, and so, but what's interesting is that they, they, they were editors. So they had a business where they would edit books for people. Um, but I never did that. I just was like, I don't do this to edit books. I do this to learn about story because my PR and marketing company, we help people tell better stories. But what was really funny is that through that process, they got to know, the future clients got to know them. So they're like, oh, I like the way you, because it's like, oh, it sounds like I know you. And I think that is probably the crux of it. I mean, you can get that in video. Um, But I think you're right. You may like judge, like if I see, you know, you on video, I may just completely turn it off. But if I hear your voice and I've got like a rapport, it just, it feels more intimate, I guess, to me, it feels more intimate to me. So um, how do you, how do you go about creating that? I mean, if if you want to be a podcast guest, as an example, how do you create that, um, that feeling. I mean, how do you not only serve the, obviously the podcaster's audience, but also serve yourself in like a non, you know, salesy kind of way? I think it's coming with the right heart. And a lot of times we can see this, you know, if somebody's coming there to use and abuse the audience, you can pick that up pretty quick. You know, Jari, I have a new book and I want to sell it to your audience. And thank you for that question. Let's talk about my book again. It's just, you know, it's an awful place for an infomercial. Um, And so I think as a host and a guest, jerks don't do well on podcasts, right? Um, Maybe you can get away with it um, if you've got short elements, but sooner or later, your heart's going to come through. So I think really those people that have a servant's heart to it that come there as a guest with the goal of, I want to make the host look like a genius for inviting me, (laughs) right? Because the host will promote you more than you ever could, right? You were talking before, we do a lot of um, podcast book tours. And if you come there and you start saying how great you are, you just sound like you're vain, right? But if you do a good job and the host starts saying, oh, this book was awesome, great author, great person, you know, all you can do is smile and say, thank you very much. Um, and so it's, it's much more powerful there. So I think it's, it's really coming with the right heart. And, and um, I think that even starts when you reach out to the host. Um, I have become to hate. Okay. Hate's a strong word. I'll use the word loathe these pitches, right? 
I get pitched probably two or three times a day and I don't have a podcast, but everybody loves my podcast and wants to be a guest. And I just look at it as you pitch a baseball, you introduce an idea, you introduce uh, a human. So um, when they, when they come and they just robo pitch, you know, and they've got a list and they're going to send everybody's um, podcast um, that I want to be on it. It's, you might get some yeses, but they're not the yeses that you want. So I think it, it even comes with that. Those people that are authentic and have a heart, you can pick them out. Oh yeah. I mean, like I, I think, well, so I do PR and marketing is sort of my main, my main hustle. Um, my, which this was my side hustle and I was doing digital health company, uh, that had, that was trying to track the temperature and location of perishable medical supplies so they don't spoil. Uh, and I got into this whole PR gig cause, cause of my wife, actually my late wife, uh, she passed away three years ago from leukemia. Um, and what was really interesting is that when we first met and then when she got sick, she's like, you need to take this over because I can't go outside. I don't have an immune system. And I remember like the first couple of times I had to pitch someone (laughs) and like our jobs to pitch media. Right. And I was just, I just didn't know what to do. And I, again, same thing, like robo pitch kind of thing. And, you know, and she was really good at it because she had the heart and she knew about like what it was, but it took me a good six months to figure out that, uh, I needed to get to know the reporter. Um, and, and actually there's a great service called Haro help a reporter out mm-hmm. that, um, that I subscribe to it. It's free to subscribe to. And the, the guy that founded it has this PR and uh, PR class that he, he does online. Right. And so, um, I, I like, okay, I got to sign up. I mean, I signed it up for it like last week. Right. And, and like, I've been doing this for three years, almost four years. But the thing that was really great about that, again, I think going back to being authentic and helping people out and and being like, oh, wow, as a guest, you made the host look better or whatever. I mean, and it's a give and take, but he was going through like his ideal pitch, right? And I already knew this because Jane taught me this, but he's like, it's got to be three paragraphs and it's got to be da-da-da, right? And make it personal. And the thing that he, he ended with was like, make it useful. like. Help, help, it means help a reporter out, literally means help them out. (laughs) So I think what's really interesting about you guys, what you're doing at Interview Valet, which is, which is you are helping the, the podcaster with guests that are, you know, may or may not make them look good, but the, the bar, the standard is a lot higher. You know, I'll just give you an example. You know, when I, when, when we booked this interview, you know, I get a, I have a one sheet of like what you want to talk about, who you are. I don't have to do a lot of, of work. Like I, I, it's all here, right? So now I can focus on what am I going to ask Tom? Oh, I'm going to ask Tom about, you know, the Navy. I really, I really love people in the military and I like to support veterans. So, okay, how's that all going to work? But a lot of people don't do that because they have the attitude that you just talked about. Like, I'm going to sell my book. I want to talk about my company. Um, and that's fine. I mean, I think before we started, I'm like, talk about whatever you want. I don't, you know, we're an entrepreneur podcast. You should expect us to pitch our idea because we're entrepreneurs. <laughs> we're going to go to the highest mountain and we're going to yell and scream what we do so that hopefully one of you will help us out, right? Because it's a hard job. I mean, anyway, you know what I mean? So I think that's a great way to put it, the servant leadership. So h- how do you translate that uh, to your staff of 18 and the clients you work with, H- how's the process? Cause I'm really fascinated about process and people that what they do on the daily, you know? So l- let's talk about your process a little bit for interview valet. And then I'd like to talk about like what you do on a daily basis to kind of make that successful. Sure. And it really comes down to process. Like what we were talking about before with nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've got great people. We have got hardworking, motivated people, but I can't go out there and find somebody with 20 years experience in the podcasting industry, right? It doesn't exist. So we've got to, to give them the systems, the processes. And I honestly believe that 99% of the world wants to do a great job, yeah, right? There's one, 1% of psychopaths out there that are just trying to mess things up. But often it's either they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the process, they didn't have the training. 
Um, so that was one of the reasons we looked and said why we're intentionally a remote team is because we want to find the best people, not the best people in Kalamazoo. And also, um, you know, podcasting, we serve clients throughout the world. We serve podcasters throughout the world. Um, so I can't just say, well, nine to five East coast time, unless it snows. Um, it just seemed like it was the, the thing there. Um, so we give them the tools, we give them the processes, uh, when there is a problem, first thing we look at is, okay, did we follow the process? Can we improve the process? Um, you know, did we, did we hire the wrong person? If that's so, that's still a process problem and it comes back on us. And most of the times just to start looking at there, that makes it easy and you get better every time. So every time that you have a, a speed bump, it's great because good, we can smooth that out before we pick up speed. Uh, Cause if we would have hit it, you know, a year from now and we're going 90 miles an hour, it could be fatal. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, is that, um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, how do you manage a remote team? More and more, I think that is the worst question I have ever heard because you cannot manage a remote team or I, I struggle with that. That's like, um, how do you manage um, a team of horses remotely? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you got, you got to be really, really good. I look at it as I want to bring people onto the team that don't need to be managed. They want to be led. Mm, So it's like, how do you lead a remote team? That's a different question. And, you know, they, you should get people that are self-motivated, give them the tools they need to, to empower them. But if they need to be babysat, if you need to have all of your team there in the cubicle so you can watch over them, so they're doing the right thing. I just look at that as that I'd, I'd have the wrong people there. So a lot of times we look at people that can thrive in this, um, that are self-motivated, more had that more entrepreneurial spirit um, in them. Um, and when that's the case, it makes it easier to lead them and more fun to lead them. Um, you know, somebody pointed out to me early on that this business that I was building was like no other that I had done before because my last build business was e-commerce. So build the engine, uh, add the fuel, and it just runs. You know, with a service-based business, it's more like raising a child. You know, so you start out and it seems like you've got to do everything. Then you make a little progress and you're like, yes, we're getting somewhere. And then they regress a little bit. But to the point where we are now, it's almost like it's the business has grown. I've got a leadership team. I've got great people. Often it's like they, they come up to me and say, you know, can we have the keys to the car? And will you get out of the driveway and let us get on with what we, we need to do? And I love that now and seeing them grow in it. And, uh, you know, I, I call myself the chief evangelist officer because I got some buddies that are CEOs of publicly traded companies. It's like, no, I'm not a CEO, but I am proud to be a chief evangelist officer where I'm evangelizing for our team, for our clients, for the industry. And, uh, you know, that, that allows me to do what I enjoy doing. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's a great, great attitude to have. I wish more people had that type of attitude because one one of the things that I do is I I mentor young entrepreneurs and I find <laughs> that the younger folk <laughs> they tend to want to like control everything like the puppet strings and I always tell them I just say you know you have no control and they're like no 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 we've got the board of Trello and I sign them tickets and I'm like no just fundamentally you have no control you can't tell someone what to do and you can't make them do it like, but I can pay them. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like you have no control of telling someone what to do. You have to empower them to do what they already want to do. And that's, I think this leadership thing that's really important because even I think in, 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 um, in the military, um, the best units are the ones that aren't just like, do as I say They're it's a collaborative environment because you know, it's life and death. So you have to do some of that, but that trust is built up over a long period of time uh, because you want, I think, at least if it was me, I want the grunt in the field to make a good decision and not have to call back headquarters when people are shooting at them. Just 
that just seems to me like a good way to go. <laughs> My guess is it's a good way to go in the bowels of an aircraft carrier when the nuclear power plant's going, oh no, I think we better turn the dial down. <laughs> and uh, as you were saying that, I can I can think of, um, we, we it's called discretional effort, right? Oh, okay. Um, it, you can you can make somebody do something and they'll do the minimum amount, uh, as long as you were there. Um, and you know, uh, most of the time, like in the civilian world, we're all volunteers, right? Well, you're my employee. I can force you to do this. No, you can't. You can fire me, but we're all volunteers. Military is different, right? Uh, you've signed up for a contract. Um, if you don't do it, you can't quit. So, but in the military, uh, uh, it's funny that um, often you'd be going along and you'd want to come five degrees left and you may on the ship say, um, come right, you know, say you're on zero, zero, zero. So you're going true north and you want to come left five degrees and you say, come right to course three, five, five. Well, what you told him to do was go in a complete circle to get there. <laughs> Right. right. And uh, if you are a jerk as a leader, as an officer, you ordered them to do this, they will do exactly what you say. They will say, coming right. And all of a sudden, you're like halfway through the circle, the turn, and you're like, uh oh. And everybody's just laughing at you. And the good leaders were the ones that the helmsman would go, come right. So it's course three, five, five, and you'd hear that in their voice and you'd be like, blame my last come left. And they're like, yeah. So it's like, um, I knew what you meant, but that's not what you said. So they'd give you this chance to recover. Um, and I think in, in civilian life, it's the same way, right? Um, totally. If, if, totally. if you tell somebody to do something wrong and they want to set you up, they can do it, you know? Um, but, uh, and and the thing is, you want them always thinking. You know, I remember my grandpa once told me that you hire a mule for his back, you hire a man or woman for their mind. Yeah. Right. So if you treat them like a mule, that's what you're going to get. Um, if you treat them like a man, a a human being, then you get their mind too. And I'd I'd much rather have that discretional effort. Oh, totally. I mean, there there was actually a uh, I was a submarine. It was in around Japan and I think it hit like a fishing vessel and a bunch of people died. Um, and they did an analysis on, well, why did you guys surface? And the guys like he told me to, and if I didn't listen to him, I would have got hammered. I mean, I literally would have got, you know, cause they had all sorts of indications that, oh, we're not sure, but they knew that this captain or whoever it was, that if you crossed him, your, your career was over. So they're like, okay. And they figured out that it wasn't a collaborative environment. It was more of a hierarchy where, I mean, everyone they interviewed said, if you didn't do what he said, your your career's over. So you're afraid to question any order that he had. And I think that's a great point you, you put in. The discre- was it called discretionary effort? Discretionary effort. Discretionary effort. Because you want your people to think. Um and you want them to think in a way that's going to benefit not only them, but you. I mean, especially under times of stress and duress, which I can imagine on an aircraft carrier could be pretty like, ah, you know, um, it's it's just funny because as people get more stressed out, their decisions become simpler. They revert back to their training and they make more mistakes. And I mean, yeah, I think having that distributed effort, I think – um, it's what, what is, what does someone call it? It's called a uh, decentralized control. I think Jocko Willink calls it decentralized control, which is, you know, basically putting the decision all the way out to the, to the edge. Um, and it sounds like that's sort of what you're trying to do at interview valet, because I got my, got to believe if you've got 18 people all around the country, it's going to be hard to kind of micromanage each one. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible. It, it, impossible and not a whole lot of fun. Right? True. That's true. That that's not what I want to do, and it's not scalable either. Um, in some ways, it's like raising children or raising leaders. Uh, you want to give them the authority to make the decisions and be there to follow up with them. You know, and if they make a mistake, as long as it's a small mistake and they learn from it, that's fine. 
but don't give them the chance to make a fatal mistake. Um, and one of the things I've learned is that early on, I wanted to be the smartest person in the room, right? So if there was a question, I know the answer to this. It doesn't matter if I know it. It's does everybody else in the room know it? And so uh, really forcing myself to always speak last. Because if I give my answer, everybody else is going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely how it is. But if you you just wait to at the end, often that you'll find a better answer. Or if you hear the answer that you like, you can go, you know what? I I really like Jari's answer there. That was awesome. We're going to go with that. Um, And with that, too, it empowers people that they can make the decision because I'm not always available, right? Um, sometimes I'm on a, on a plane, sometimes <laughs> on vacation, and I don't want everybody's response going, well, you know, we've got to call Tom. Yeah. No, you know, the, you know, the answer. Uh, and often, you know, um, like our account managers, uh, we've got about a third of the team that are client account managers. They know the client's account better than I do. The, you know, a third of them are podcast relationship managers and they know the podcast host one-on-one better than I do. In fact, uh, I was at uh, a podcast meeting a few years ago and uh, a podcaster um, came up to me and uh, I love this. It was uh, Michael O'Neill from the Solopreneur Hour. Mm, And he looked at my name tag and he goes, interview ballet. He said, do you know Rosie? And I'm like, yeah. And he starts telling me how he's got this great, great relationship. And uh, she introduces the best guests to him. And they talk every couple of weeks. And they both like Springsteen and all the rest of this. And then he looks at me and goes, well, how do you know her? I said, <laughs> I, get, I, said I get to work with her. Oh, I'm like, that's, that's great. great. And But then he came back about 20 minutes later. He goes, um, you own this company? You founded it? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, why didn't you tell me that? I said, because it didn't matter. Rosie works for you. I work for Rosie. And to me, that was, you know, uh, everybody's Rolodex is, is limited. Right. And so if we're just going off of my Rolodex, um, we got a problem, but if everybody has the relationships and we're working together, it's just so much more powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, that's a great, uh, I think that's a great example of kind of servant leadership where, you know, you're serving the people around you and the people that work for you, but also your clients. Uh, hard to do, but I think you're right. I think it's more fun. I mean, how, how cool is it when someone comes up to you and says, oh, I, oh, she's great. I really love it. Or he's great or whatever. I mean, for me, it just makes me feel prideful. I mean, like, wow, actually, I guess I hired the right people. I'm kind of, right. I put pat on the back, you know, a little bit like that. So, so what, so how do you, so what's your day to day like? I mean, how, how do you manage all of this? Uh, Cause it's gotta be, a lot of work, a lot of fun, but so what's your sort of daily schedule look like? You know, it's, it's weird. If you'd ask my wife how much I worked, or if you asked me how much I worked, you'd get two different answers. Cause I don't, you know, I would say I probably work, I don't know, 10 hours a week. And she'd probably like, no, he's more like 60 hours a week. But to me, there's 10 hours of stuff that I wouldn't do if you didn't pay me. Right. It's, it's, it's the stuff that I consider work. The rest of it is fun. And to me, I, I think this idea of work-life balance sets people up for failure, right? Um, our life, my life has never been balanced. I think it's work-life integration. So, you know, when I had little kids, um, it was never balanced, right? So there's certain times they needed more of me right now we're empty nesters and I love it because you know, I can focus on the things that I want to when I want to. Uh, you know, we take Wednesday afternoon off to be with the uh, the grandkids, and so oh, cool. you know that's that's the flexibility in there. But for me, most of my days is you know it's chief evangelist officer. So I've got a, a leadership team um, with two people. Uh, one runs the the porter or the podcast relationship manager side. The other one runs the client side. I still run the sort of the sales and marketing side. Um, so the three of us, you know, do the the leadership stuff. Uh, get together with them once a day for just a check in call that we go through everything. Um, and uh, besides that, I you know do a lot of speaking because I love to do that. Uh, either, you know, I used to love physical stages and traveling. Uh, now it's more the digital stages. I uh, do a lot of the client calls um, because I, 
I still have a little bit of control there. While we've got a, a great person on the sales team, uh, there's a lot of times where I want to talk with somebody because, um, you know, I remember a few years ago, somebody told me a, a, a leader's role is to keep crazy out of the business. And that's oh. crazy team members, wow. but also crazy customers. Oh, good one. I'm going to steal right? that uh, one. <laughs> well, and what, what they were is we, I was at a conference and I remember her saying that where she said, if, if somebody came up to you, and this was a lot of small business owners and said, uh, I've got a million dollars that I want to work with your company on. It was all social media, uh, who she was talking to. And you know, how many of you people would be interested in that? And these are companies that maybe had six figures in sales and everybody's hand goes up and then she goes, that's your problem, right? There's, they're crazy. There's a reason they're coming to you and they won't work with any of the big firms because they won't touch you. And they're going to come in and they're going to drive your best people away and you're going to have all kinds of problems here. And yeah. so she said, be careful what you wish for. So I always look at that and um, uh, I, I call it the... Uh, the no jerk rule yes. it used to be called something different yes, yes. and you know it's still in our uh, letter of understanding right that we're all working together we're partners here right mm-hmm. we all want the same thing if you want to yell at somebody if you want to curse at somebody call me right good luck i've been called worse by better oh, i've yeah. been in the military right <laughs> good let's let's, good luck. let's see your best <laughs> let's see your best but you know don't don't yell at my staff, right. don't curse at my staff that are trying to do the best thing for you. Yeah. Um, cause I want to, pr- I want to protect them. I want to energize them. And, you know, it's like going back. I don't want mule is a bad, um, bad analogy there, but right. If, if you, if you come in and, and whip this, this team member and then expect them to give that discretionary effort, it's not going to happen. So I'm trying to, to help out people there. So, um, you know, and once again, I, uh, a lot of what I do is remote now, uh, some of it not by choice anymore, um, but I love it. It gives me the flexibility. Um, you know, we've got clients throughout the world, so it's not uncommon for me to have a 5 a.m. call, but that's okay um, because I get up early in the morning, right? Or um, people go, you have to work on Sunday. I'm like, no, don't you realize like the people in the Middle East, Sunday is a work day for them. So yeah. if I can get if I can get a few calls done then or jump on a call on Sunday night with somebody in Australia and get their week started off right, that's perfect for me. But uh in the same way, Wednesday afternoon, uh if I take Wednesday afternoon off, it's no, I'm not um I'm not uh skipping out of work. It's just it's the work life balance. Yeah. No, that's integration. A, yeah, integration. No, I it totally understand where you're coming from. Cause I know a lot of young entrepreneurs ask about that because it's kind of a buzzword like, Oh, what's this life work life balance thing all about. And I'm, I'm with you. Like to me, if I'm doing something I love, it's not work. It's like my journey. It's like my creative pursuit. I'm always thinking about stuff and you know, it's sometimes hard to shut it off, which I'm working on, but I'm just happy to do it. Right. It's like fun. Um, but they're always like this work-life balance, especially younger folk. And I'm like, well, look, if you don't know anything, you got to work a little harder to f- know some stuff. <laughs> and then, and then once you know some stuff, then you can talk about like that other thing. But I think it's like you said, in stages with kids or whatever, I really, I really like the way you put that uh, work-life integration. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that have done entrepreneurs for entrepreneurships, sorry, for a long time, they understand that's the reason why they do it. They do it because they don't want the nine to five. <laughs> Someone telling me what to do. Ah, man, I'm unemployable. Don't even talk about that. So yeah, I actually struggled that with, with that at the beginning of this crisis here, right? Mm. All hands on deck, trying to help as many people as we could. And our business actually grew because of this, right? Because there were a lot of people that said, I don't have a travel budget anymore. I don't have a conference budget. I don't have a way to reach my people, but I still have a number to hit. So they turned to us. And I think after about uh, three and a half weeks of working straight, not taking weekends off, and I was, I was really trying to help as much as I could, and I felt like I was just burnt out. And with that, it was like, yeah, well, this is 
this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and I, I don't do anybody any good um, if I make it halfway through uh, and then drop dead. Right. So with that, just you know, pulling back and sometimes it's weird because it's like, uh, am I taking Saturday and Sunday off? I'm not sure what day it is, but you know, if it's a nice day in Michigan, um, yeah, that's my weekday yeah, or my weekend. For sure. For sure. Well, Tom, I, I really appreciate your time and your insights into podcasting life and entrepreneurship. Um, really great what you guys are doing over at Interview Valet. I think it's just an awesome thing. And uh, is there anything you'd like to tell listeners before we kind of wrap it up? Yeah. And I always, you know, what's ordinary to to you is amazing to other people. And I want to give people the resources. Um, and so if they go to interviewvalet.com uh, forward slash ethos, um, you know, mentioned my book, I sell a lot of the books on, um, on Amazon, but I give a whole lot more away. So if you go there, uh, there's a free copy of the book. Uh, there's an assessment, about 12 questions that you can answer, uh, that'll give you a sense whether or not you could leverage targeted podcast interviews. And then finally, if, if any of this resonated with you and you're like, wow, I think, you know, I'd like to talk with Tom or his team about how I could leverage targeted podcast interviews as an author or as a, as a brand, a coach or a consultant to get out there in front of my ideal listeners. I'll put my calendar scheduling link there. All of it will be there at interviewvalet.com forward slash ethos. Wow. Thank you so much, Tom. That's very generous. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your service, I think would be appropriate as well. Not only your past service in the in the military, but your continued service to everyone out there trying to get the word out. And yeah, go check it out, everyone. And uh, Tom, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Okay, let's say you're on vacation or out running errands and you want to see what's going on at home. Or you're at home and you want to see what your dog's getting up to downstairs. With self-protection from Xfinity, you can keep an eye on things no matter where you are with live and recorded video, all on your terms. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash self-protection. Restrictions apply. Residential customers only. Requires Xfinity Internet and compatible XFi gateway. Professional monitoring not included. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.